0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: And we're really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is waiting for you, as always. So we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And I would argue... Jim, these are almost universally good, bad, and crazy martinis. I'm not even sure you have to be a conservative to appreciate them, each from that perspective. Uh, Let's start with the news we got, just as uh, most of us were wrapping up work, uh, heading for home, at least on the East Coast, uh, yesterday. Uh, Jim, it reminded me of this moment from almost 20 years ago. Ladies and gentlemen, we got them. That, of course, was Paul Bremer in Iraq talking about the capture of Saddam Hussein. Yesterday, we found out that the U.S. found, targeted, and killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda. He was in Kabul. And, Jim, not only is it uh, great news that he's dead, because this guy goes all the way back to the East Africa embassy bombings. He goes back to the USS Cole, obviously 9-11. Madrid train bombings, seven uh, seven in London, all the horrific Al Qaeda related terrorist attacks you can think of, many beyond those. Uh, he was there at the epicenter of all of it, and so uh, we've been chasing him for over twenty years, and it's great that he's gone. Here is President Biden with a nice backdrop, actually, from the balcony, which I assume they did because you know he's got COVID still. Uh, but here's how he explained uh, uh, the 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 taking out of Ayman al Zawahiri. Now justice has been delivered and this terrorist leader is no more people around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer the United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm you know we we we, we make it clear again tonight that no matter how long it takes no matter where you hide if you are a threat to our people united states will find you and take you out there you go jim i'm an al zawahiri check them off the list
0: greg it's, it's dead terrorist day this is my favorite <laughs> holiday i feel like we should be you know breaking up the party hats the kazoos confetti i want to see fireworks to me this is one of the best holidays because you never really know when it's going to come i'd like to see it happen on a regular schedule every couple of months hey you know that terrorist who tried to kill Americans or who killed Americans well he's dead now uh spectacularly with this one the strike was using a new kind of hellfire missile I understand was the same one that was used against Qasem Soleimani uh back in the early days of the year 2020 back when we thought that was going to be the big story of the year (laughs) 2020 had other things in, in store for us but uh that was the Iranian Quds Force uh general who was uh had a great deal of blood on his hands for supporting terror groups around the Middle East. Now, if you're not familiar with the R9X Hellfire Missile, it's probably better known by the nickname that I love, the Flying Ginsu, because it does not really use an explosion. It travels at extremely high velocity, and right before impact, deploys six sharp blades at a high velocity to kill the targets. Uh, the aim was to feed the basically the military and intelligence community had wanted a way to take out targets that was more precise, that very often I think they described as called the left seat, right seat problem, where you have a target, a terrorist who's in one seat in a car, but there are other people in the car who are not marked for death, who are not terrorists and who the U- might be civilians that the U.S. didn't want to kill. And the idea was to develop a kind of weapon that could kill someone in the passenger seat and spare whoever was in the driver's seat or vice versa. Uh, it slices. It dices. Now, how much would you pay? Ron, po- this this is the weapon Ron Pope would love to sell you in late night television. I'm an By the way, Greg, I salute you for not pronouncing it correctly. I was I was corrected the other day by someone. Uh, Zawahiri will not rest in peace, but rest assured he is resting in pieces. <laughs> um, this is a spectacular. Look, this more or less closes the book on certainly the original era of Al Qaeda. As I lay out in today's Morning Jolt, if you haven't thought about Ayman al-Zawahiri in a long time, that's understandable. He hasn't been in the news. Al-Qaeda really has, I think, I went back and I checked. The last really large-scale terrorist attack that I think really kind of shocked the world that was committed by Al-Qaeda, you know, traditional, um, was the uh, Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris. Um, They did launch, when I went back to check on this, I was really kind of struck by how little... Uh, This made a splash. December 6, 2019, Naval Air Station, Pensacola. There was a Saudi who was being trained by the U.S. military who turned the guns on his trainers and killed three people. And eventually al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula claimed responsibility for that attack. By and large, Americans don't think that much about al-Qaeda these days. I think ever since the killing of Baghdadi, we don't even think that much about ISIS these days we don't think about islamic terror very much these days it doesn't mean it's not gone there's still groups there are still uh folks out there who want to kill us but they are not as organized and thankfully our military our intelligence communities our law enforcement and other uh, apparatus of government have done a pretty darn good job of disrupting their plots and allowing us to live in peace now this doesn't mean our lives are perfect we have new things to worry about these days we worry about school shooters we worry about uh, high crime rates and gangs and drug cartels and, uh, uh, you know, God knows what kind of next virus is coming over in an international flight from someone who should have known better things like that. Um, but we are not living in that post-9-11 era again and this closes the book on, you know, the guy who was second in command for at one point the, you know, most genuinely frightening menace to face the country in many times. The Soviet Union never killed 3,000 Americans in, in Lower Manhattan. Uh, China has not done that. There are all kinds of, you know, menacing forces in this world that did not, were not able to do, that never had the nerve to do what Al Qaeda did. Uh, this is long awaited justice and it is absolutely, uh, a great day. And, you know, look for, we give President Biden a lot of extremely well-deserved grief. But look, he gave the order, the operation was executed on his watch and he gets to take a victory lap over this. And so good for you, President Biden. It's not something you're gonna hear very often. Good for you members of the military and intelligence community who put this together. Um, I do think we can now also like fairly ask some questions about our policy towards Afghanistan. It is good that we still have the ability to strike targets in Afghanistan, but it's also you know, no doubt uh, Zawahari was living in Kabul and apparently one of the better neighborhoods under the protection of the Taliban. Now, by the way, this should be a good demonstration as to just how good the protection of the Taliban is for you. Um, but this is clearly a case that Al-Qaeda, which has never been all that distinguishable from the Taliban. They have now become effectively symbiotic organizations. Uh, they now have another place to operate. They are not currently considered to be an extremely high-risk threat here in the U.S., but if you give terrorist groups time to incubate and to not be harassed and to operate and to train and all that kind of stuff in a place like Afghanistan, the hard lesson of 9-11 is that eventually they will strike at the U.S. homeland. So um, there's still some very fair questions to be asked about uh, U.S. policy towards Afghanistan. But let's face it, killing Zawahiri is the first thing to go right in U.S. policy towards Afghanistan in a very long time.
1: It is. And we're going to talk in just a second about uh, some of the questions that are raised uh, by this. But uh, first of all, Jim, um, you know Zawahiri was out there on his balcony, and so the family was in another part of the house, and so the flying Ginsu comes in. And I heard today, I don't know if this is true all the time, but uh, these Hellfire missiles have the capability of having a camera in the tip, and so they can basically watch it go straight at their target. And so uh, basically Morgan Freeman and Shawshank Redemption, after the warden kills himself, kind of goes through my mind. I'd like to think the last thing that went through Zawahiri's mind, other than that ginsu knife, was how the U.S. found him. (laughs) Well, I understand
0: that um, the place that he was staying had a policy against smoking on the balcony. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, Zawahiri is still smoking on the balcony.
1: (laughs) Okay, so over at the White House today... (laughs) No, no respect for dead terrorists on this podcast. We, the spirit of Disney CTU
0: lives on with us.
1: <laughs> yes, I have I have absolutely no problem with uh smoking jokes about Iman al Zawahri. But uh so John Kirby Backa will kill you. Oh my god. <laughs> so John Kirby was uh on the White House lawn today talking to CNN and uh John Kirby uh you know he's pretty slick but he's light years better than kjp at this kind of stuff uh but as he described why the the uh, attack happened here it raises some questions here's how it goes we've made it very clear uh that this was a violation not that we believe not that we think it was a violation of the doha agreement which specifically says that it commits them to not allowing afghanistan to be used as a safe haven or a launching pad for attacks against the united states uh, or other of our allies and partners and clearly Because Mr. Zawahiri was not only there, but was actively encouraging his followers to plot and plan attacks against the American interest and the American homeland, that's a violation. So, he's not in some cave out in the wilderness, Jim. He's in a house in downtown Kabul. And so, one of the things we were told last year is that uh, this is not going to be a situation where Al-Qaeda is allowed to reconstitute in Afghanistan, and now we have to wonder whether that's happening, albeit now under new leadership. So, the Biden administration is is going to argue that, well, getting out was fine because we have the ability to take out dangerous targets inside Afghanistan. Others are going to say, you promised that this would not be a terrorist safe haven, and the Paris feels so safe. They're just they're just renting out apartments or buying houses in downtown Kabul now. So um, how do we read that?
0: Yeah, look. First of all, John Kirby, I, I got to break it to you. I think the Taliban lies. <laughs> I think they're not always honest. You know, look as you know, every report, every assessment leading up to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was that the U. Despite making all these pledges in the Doha Accords and all that stuff. The Taliban never separated from Al-Qaeda, that they were always working hand in glove with them. And that, you know, one of the reasons many of us were deeply troubled by the U.S. withdrawal from from Afghanistan was that once the Taliban took over, they were once again going to go back to their old tricks of running a bed and breakfast for terrorist groups and helping them set up training camps and and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that scenario has come to pass. Now, the fact that the U.S. could take out the biggest name in terrorism circles in Afghanistan. Great, that's really good to hear. Clearly, we have some capability. We don't know where this uh, flying Ginsu drone was deployed from. Uh, I guess theoretically could be from off the coast of Pakistan. Um, I guess we may, I'm trying to think what other, you know geographically, we didn't have a lot of other bases in the region uh, to be the most convenient spot to continue to go in and hit targets as, opportunities to present themselves clearly we still have sources on the ground clearly we still have some ability to find uh this stuff so maybe we are still on top of the threat but we've effectively given them this country to operate in, and we're just hoping for the best that at no point do they try to strike americans either those who are still remaining in afghanistan hey remember when joe biden said he was going to get all the americans out anyway um you know, either in that country or in the region or god forbid here in the u.s homeland um, you know, again, good news here in this particular case, but a clear demonstration that you know Afghanistan is now a home for terrorists again. And there's, you know, you can't begrudge people for having that feeling that sooner or later that's going to come back to bite us again.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, you wonder how they got the beat on Zawahiri as well, and Jim, it's possible that he just didn't have a VPN on his computer, and so he was. Uh- <laughs> He was tra-
0: as much as we're. Tra- Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if cyber uh, security was an issue. There was monitoring of communications and things like that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 a transition, but it's it's not an entirely uh, joke of a transition. But you know, using the internet without ExpressVPN, it's like taking a call on a train or a bus on speaker for everyone to hear because everybody then has access to your most private information. Don't be that person. Get ExpressVPN.
0: Don't be Iman (laughs) Al-Zawahiri. Actually, actually, that's a general advice for life. But you should still be using ExpressVPN because Internet service providers know every single website you visit. And in the U.S., they can legally sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. Thankfully, just targeting you with ads, not with Hellfire (laughs) missiles. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet, so people cannot look in on your online activity. You just fire up the app and click one button. It works on phones, laptops, and even routers. No wonder it's rated number one by Business Insider and The Verge.
1: Secure your online activity today at expressvpn.com slash martini and get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free. That's ExpressVPN. <clears throat> That's ExpressVPN.com slash martini. ExpressVPN.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And you wrote about this one in the corner. And this is Curious now, because we keep sending billions upon billions of dollars uh, to to fund the Ukrainian war machine, but uh, you are seeing signs uh, in Tom Friedman's New York Times column that the U.S. in the relationship with uh, Zelensky is fraying, and it could be for a couple of reasons. Number one, the war's going south, and uh, they're going to blame Zelensky for it. Or two, Zelensky's not being the, um, the good friend here that we suspected. And the paragraph that uh, is really raising eyebrows is this one. On July 17th, Zelensky fired his country's prosecutor general and the leader of its domestic intelligence agency, the most significant shakeup in his government since the Russian invasion in February. It would be the equivalent of Biden firing Merrick Garland and Bill Burns on the same day. Burns is the CIA director, and I have still not seen any reporting that convincingly explains what that was all about. It's as if we don't want to look too closely under the hood in Kiev for fear of what corruption or antics we might see when we have invested so much there. Jim, all of a sudden, the corruption's back in Kyiv. It's amazing. But uh, so, what do you what do you suspect here? Are we is this administration getting tired of uh, bankrolling uh, Zelensky, thinking there might be an actual um, uh, ceasefire agreement here that we can live with with the Russians, or or what's going on?
0: Well, okay. So this is the second time Tom Friedman has made a reference like this in recent weeks. Uh, apparently, he's one of Biden's favorite columnists, and it seems safe to say that probably amongst White House officials particularly those who deal with foreign policy and national security and things like that, uh, then Tom Friedman is probably a columnist who they're speaking to pretty regularly. So if that is in his column, it is because White House officials want that out there in his column. If you want to keep a secret, don't tell it to Tom Friedman or any other New York Times uh, columnist, unless it's bad economic news, because then Paul Krugman will never share it. Um <laughs> But in, you know, in this case, like you know, this this here's the thing. Look, from the beginning, people have argued that there was a decent amount of corruption in Ukraine. I don't think that justifies a Russian invasion, and I don't think that the U.S. should necessarily be neutral between Russia and Ukraine. But there's no doubt that this is a country that has had its share of political problems and uh, problems with integrity and government in the past. But I, you know, again, as I as I you know mentioned both in this in a corner post and on Twitter recently, like. If you think Zelensky is a crook, or if you think he's all hat and no cattle, and knows a lot of people kind of griping about that Vogue magazine photo shoot featuring him and his wife, Um, or if you just don't think he's up to the task of leading his country against a Russian invasion, which, by the way, he's been doing for five months. So I'd be curious about why you suddenly don't have as much faith in him now. Well, we've been doing this for five months. We've sent eight billion to Ukraine so far, and we're basically in a proxy war with a nuclear armed foe. So... This is really bad timing to suddenly realize you don't really think Zelensky is such a great guy anymore. This is, you know, we kind of needed to know this before we got committed into this fight. We're in it now. We don't really have that much of a choice about suddenly saying, oh, well, we don't like these guys. We're not going to back them or anything like that. So I see two possible motives here. Your mileage may vary. I do not pretend to have any inside information. I just simply look at what this administration has done and said in the past and contrast it with now. Uh, One possibility is that the Biden administration wants the Russian-Ukraine war to end. uh, And Zelensky, we've seen, you know, periodic murmurs about this, that, you know, that the Biden administration and other NATO powers could probably live with certain territorial concessions on the part of Ukraine if that ended the war. Zelensky and the Ukrainian people don't want to, you know, concede one inch of their territory. They don't want to reward Putin for his aggression. And so maybe this possibility of this tension between these two perspectives is getting worse and worse in the administration who knows? maybe they maybe they're getting ready to leave Zelensky out to dry we will help you up into a point and at that point you're on your own sorry pal that's not too much um and the other possibility is look we know a good deal about what the russian casualties are and they're really darn high we get much less information about what the ukrainian casualties are and we know all of these russian shelling are inflicting a great deal of damage on cities, inflicting a lot of civilian casualties and things like that. How you know, It seems like the war has been in a stalemate for a couple of months, but who knows, maybe Ukraine's you know, starting to run out of uh, supplies here. Um, if you are in the Biden administration and you foresee the war going badly, maybe you're trying to get out in front of this by using Zelensky as a scapegoat to say, look, well, we tried to do everything we could to help the Ukrainians, but Zelensky just wasn't up to it. They just had too much corruption. They just had too much internal fighting. They just couldn't get their act together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, look, I have a very cynical perspective on Joe Biden. It will not surprise you for those who are listening to this podcast. And I think one of the most clear lessons of this is how tough Biden sounded on the campaign trail in 2019, 2020. Uh, when I'm president, Putin knows his days of bullying Eastern Europe are over because I'm the one who can go toe-to-toe with him, blah, blah, blah. And then once Biden's in office, you know, all of a sudden he's, you know, dropping U.S. opposition to Nord Stream 2, eagerly signing an arms treaty with Putin, uh, a whole bunch of other signs and openly in speeches saying that he wanted to have a stable and predictable relationship with Vladimir Putin's Russia. Now, remember, pretty much since, the you know, going back to the election of 2016, to the average Democrat, Vladimir Putin was Satan in their minds. And all of a sudden he gets into office. And he's like, well, I just want to have a stable, predictable relationship with Satan. That's a, that's a really unusual 180 degree turn there. Um, and I think it's a sign that in the end, first of all, Democratic hawkishness on Russia was always highly conditional on Donald Trump. That in the end, it's not that Democrats saw Trump bad because he was working with Putin. They saw Putin bad because as bad because he was working with Trump. Uh, in the end, their domestic political considerations are what truly guides the, the North Star on their compass. Um, but in the end, I think Biden and the administration, like, if they look at the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Potentially a global famine, although they did get one shipment of grain out of, uh, out of the ports there. Uh, energy prices are up. Food prices are up. Uh, Europe is looking at a potentially very cold winter and stuff like that. Maybe that's actually going to fracture the NATO alliance and things like that. Doesn't seem a lot hard for me to see Biden look at this and say, "Oh, holy smokes, we're in over our head. We just got to end the war. Figure out what it takes to end the war. If Russia gets Donbass, we never really cared who ran about, who controlled that territory anyway. We live with them taking over Crimea. Just end the war. I, look, maybe that's maybe I'm 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 speculating too much here, but it's certainly this has been a very half-hearted by, uh, opposition. Last week there was talk about the uh, Biden administration wants to send planes to uh, Ukraine." U.S. planes that the Ukrainian pilots would have to be trained upon. Never mind that back when Poland wanted to send them the MiGs, the Biden administration was opposing that. So I don't think this administration has um, one coherent viewpoint on the Russia-Ukraine war. I think they go back and forth. I think there's, there's a lot of erratic decision-making. And I think that in the end, the administration, you know, realizing that it's not going to get a nice, clean, solid victory here, is probably going to say, you know, look for a way to get out and looking for a way to use Zelensky as a scapegoat.
1: Well, I, for one, am shocked, Jim, that you would think this administration is uh, flying <laughs> by the seat of its pants. There's been no indication of that on any issue, as far as I can tell, over the past 18 months. <laughs> uh, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, I assume that— It's the, so out of character, yeah. I assume the official indication of, uh, of separating from Zelensky will be uh, Ukraine flags uh, disappearing from people's Twitter handles. On the left, if we start to see that, then yeah, we know then for sure. Somebody
0: mentioned that. That is, yeah, that'll be the sign. That'll be when all of a sudden there'll be memory hold. And, you know, we'll go back to worrying about you know microaggressions or something like that <laughs> instead of macroaggressions in the form of territorial invasions.
1: That would be a macroaggression. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, Jim, you mentioned the Democrats are focused primarily on their domestic agenda, and part of that agenda is what NetChoice has been trying to warn us about here. They say our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and to ease the economic pain we're all feeling.
0: Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world's standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world.
1: NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And today is perhaps the most significant primary day of the 2022 midterm cycle. It's not the day with the most states voting, but in terms of the critical states voting, it could definitely be today. Um, Perhaps the one getting the most attention is the Missouri Senate race. Roy Blunt is retiring there. Uh, You and Chad talked about this uh, last week when I was gone uh, and how the polls have shifted in the favor of Attorney General Eric Schmidt, which is a very good thing uh, because if Eric Greitens, the former disgraced governor, uh, were to be the nominee, it could definitely be a chance for a Democratic pickup when there is no reason for it to be a potential Democratic pickup. So yesterday, President Trump uh, let it be known that he's been watching the race very carefully and now he's uh, inching towards an endorsement just hours before the polls open and so then last night around six o'clock eastern time he releases his statement i trust the great people of missouri on this one to make up their own minds much as they did when they gave me landslide victories in 2016 and 2020 and i am therefore proud to announce that eric in all capital letters has my complete and total endorsement Which would mean something, Jim, if one of the major candidates and only one of the major candidates was named Eric. But as we just established, we have Eric Schmidt and Eric Greitens, both of whom very quickly put out statements accepting enthusiastically the endorsement of President Trump here. So, uh, Jim, I feel like the reason... Trump did this is because, A, he knows Schmidt's likely to win, but B, Kimberly Guilfoyle, his son's fiance, is uh, very much working on behalf of Eric Greit. So uh, I don't know why you would do this if you're not actually making an endorsement. So how do you read it?
0: Yeah, look, if if there's nothing was at stake, this would be funny. The ultimate way of uh, ensuring that your bases are covered, you're guaranteed to look like you picked the right guy, no matter how things shook out. Back, I think it was like 1996, uh, current Virginia Senator Mark Warner was running against the incumbent Republican Senator, John Warner. So you ha- honestly had Warner versus Warner in the race and you had a bunch of people with bumper stickers that said, Mark, not John, John, not Mark. A lot of people thought this was some sort of obscure Christian disagreement that was going on uh, with, the, with the disagreements there. The just, be, you know, you could say, oh, well, I think Warner is going to win the race. Ha, 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 you know. In this case, the problem is, is that Trump's endorsement means something in a Republican primary. It means a great deal. probably. And, you know, the fact that both of these candidates realizing what was going on and still rushed to claim that Trump had endorsed them indicates that clearly they think there's a chunk of Missouri Republicans who are sitting there waiting for Trump to endorse somebody because once Trump endorses somebody like, well, you know what, that's the guy for me. I'm going to go with that. Now, as I laid out today, if you want to endorse someone, go endorse someone. If you don't want to endorse someone, don't endorse someone. If you want to say, I think these candidates are acceptable, but this candidate's not acceptable, fine. And that's kind of what Trump did earlier, ruling out Vicky Hartzler. But this isn't like filling about your NCAA tournament bracket. You're not just trying to like pick the winner. Ideally, you're saying this person is the best candidate, and hopefully you lay out why. And Trump didn't do that. Trump basically is like, well, how about these two guys? Except they're not really the same guy." They're very different guys. Schmidt is a solid conservative. He's a state attorney general. He has a record in office who doesn't have all the litany of scandals that uh, Greitens does. And oh, by the way, unlike Greitens, Schmidt did not record a campaign ad fantasizing about hunting down and executing people who disagree with him. I think not only does Greitens not belong in the Senate, I think he belongs in a mental institution. So if you look at these two and you're like, oh, they're both good, I just can't decide. The only thing they have in common is that A, they're both Republicans, B, they both serve in the Senate, and C, they have the first name Eric, and D, they're both carbon-based life forms. That's about it, right? There's real differences between the two of them. And if you can't make a choice between those two, you probably don't belong in the decision-making business. Oh, by the way, the presidency is nothing but making decisions all day long. If you're an indecisive person, you probably don't wanna get back into the Oval Office and have nothing but difficult choices facing you. So I think Trump absolutely copped out here. I think there's a huge difference between these two candidates. I think one guarantees Republicans will keep this seat in in a cycle where a bunch of these Senate races are not looking great. The latest poll out this morning has Oz down 14 in Pennsylvania. Um, and so my attitude would be, look, you know, why would you risk this seat? Because if you nominate Greitens, one, Democrats are going to throw a bunch of money into it. Is it a Republican state? Sure. But, you know, Roy Moore in Alabama was a very Republican state, too. And Doug Jones ended up winning that one. So I don't think you know, Greitens would instantly turn this into a competitive race. Schmidt locks it up, takes it home, take it, you know, guarantee it, slam dunk. Don't need to worry about it at all. To me, it's, it's, this is an extremely you know, obvious question here and i think trump you know dodging this one for the sake of a funny eric versus eric joke i think demonstrates how seriously he takes his uh how seriously he he takes these endorsements and the unfortunate pro- the problem is that they really do have consequences in this as we see in pennsylvania and in states like georgia and places like that
1: yeah i think you make a good point jim that if he had for some reason, thought either one of them was acceptable. You and I clearly don't. I think Greitens is a total cancer on the party. Um, he could have said, either Eric is fine, but then he, he uses the singular. I mean, you and I both do a lot of writing. I am therefore proud to announce that Eric has. That's one Eric by complete and total endorsement. Yeah. And so then it just leaves it to, to confusion. So I, I guess he was trying to be clever. I don't know why. Um, I really hope Schmidt wins this easily tonight and uh, we can be done with Eric Greitens, at least in the public forum for a very long time. So forever yes yes yes
0: jim never hope that he never darken our doors again <laughs> yes.
1: jim quite a day we'll see what we have tomorrow
0: See you tomorrow,
1: Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. If you don't already, please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They really do help us out, so please keep those coming. Also, uh, please uh, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great day. Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next three martini lunch.
0: Much of the media does not cover some of the most important news of the day. I'm Byron York from the Byron York show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how the Biden administration is doing nothing to tackle the border crisis and how Hunter Biden trying to cash in on his father's government position could have some serious repercussions for his father. Don't forget to download and subscribe to the daily no chit chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue, just the ones you most need to know. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.